friends, I'm Abby Feeder, Certified Life and Fertility Coach, and you're listening to The Fertility Chick. This show is all about the path to parenthood, which is never the same for everyone, and our guests' professional success along the way. If you'd have asked me when I was a kid, or a teen, or a 20-something, if I would be hosting today's guest at all, at any point in my life about anything, let alone about infertility, the answer would have definitely been a heck no. But I'm super excited to introduce you today to Tara Lipinski. She probably needs no introduction in your life, Olympic gold medalist, who has been extremely candid and open about sharing her own fertility journey. She and her husband, Todd, released the podcast Unexpecting, such a great name for a podcast, about their five-year journey. And I have so many questions for her, and I can't wait to get into it. Please enjoy. Here's Tara. Tara, welcome to the Fertility Chick. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So happy you're here. Why don't we start with today and then move backwards and then back forward? So you are a mom. I know. That's so insane. It feels so crazy even to hear someone say that. (laughs) Yes, doesn't it? It really Um, does. It's just just a real feeling um, that, you know, for so long you lived a certain life and um, infertility was just my life for a half a decade. And then for it to um, all of a sudden one day be different, it is, it's surreal. It really is mm -hmm. sort of an interesting feeling of, oh my goodness, I'm so grateful. I'm so lucky. How is this possibly happening? And thank goodness that our life finally took a different turn. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So you ultimately got to your little girl, Georgie, via surrogacy. So let's talk a little bit about that. And we'll talk also, like you said, you went through half a decade of treatment. How did you ultimately decide to go the surrogate route? You know, I think it was, it was just the next step for us because I had four miscarriages at that point. We were losing embryos and transfers. And I just knew I wasn't going to, you know, I did so many retrievals to keep replenishing everything we were losing. And I just knew that I wasn't going to be able to sustain, you know, that type of life where it was just five years of cycle after cycle. I barely took a month off in between, whether Mm -hmm. it was dealing with DNCs or recovering from a miscarriage to transfer, to prep, to retrieval, that after the fourth miscarriage, we did immune testing. And it was the first time we finally found any indicator of an issue over the five years, you know, every test would be like, everything looks fine. Um, and so that's when I had decided I just really wanted to stop. I just didn't want to do the immune protocol. I didn't want to risk more embryos. And I started to get to a place of being very scared that all the work we put into making our embryos, that if we kept down this path, we might lose those as well. It was like a double whammy for me. Of course, I wanted to be pregnant, but then it got to the point where I was afraid we'd lose the embryos. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of quite desperate to find an option, which obviously surrogacy is that option. And that's sort of why we took that next step. Do you feel like you needed any time or, you know, I think Todd, husbands and general partners, it's such a different experience for them. Did you feel like you needed time to mourn that your body wasn't going to carry or did it feel almost like a relief that you knew you could maybe get your result without having to like worry about that piece of it? Yeah. At that point it was relief. And it was also this very interesting feeling of like not wanting to be pregnant anymore, which was strange because I had wanted it so badly. I would have done anything 
to be pregnant. And then it got to the point where I was terrified. I think again, of all, it was like PTSD and the trauma that I experienced all those weeks, each time that I was pregnant, I like kind of did the math and it was like nine months total throughout my four miscarriages. And that's a long time to experience sort of that trauma and that anxiety, high level anxiety that it made me afraid to be pregnant, which is hard to explain because I I was the complete opposite Mm-hmm. At one point, but I definitely grieved it. I just think I did that probably over those five years, little by little, without knowing it. And that's why, you know, after that last miscarriage, it just felt like I didn't want <laughs> to risk it anymore. And there was mm-hmm. no other option for me in my mind, you know? Mm-hmm. How did you go about finding your surrogate, your carrier? You know, we went through an agency and, you know, it's a process. You get all of the information bios of potential surrogates. And then you have to make sure your doctor screens them and medically approves them. And so there's all of these steps that we went through. And then you have to match with the person and feel that this is a good team effort that you're going to to spend the next nine months with this person who's carrying your child. So there's so many different steps you have to take. And then For us, we just knew when we met Michaela that that was sort of meant to be. (laughs) Hmm. Was she local? I don't remember. No, no. She's in Idaho. So it was a little trek to get here. (laughs) Yeah. Would she FaceTime you for appointments? Mm -hmm. Every single one? Like how did it work? She would FaceTime every single one. And I think because I had so much of my own baggage from my pregnancies and scan anxieties and the heartbeat scan, especially, which that was, you know, so that was sort of our big hurdle. But I would make a plan with her beforehand where she would go in and actually not call me or FaceTime me until the doctor checked the baby, until the heartbeat was up. And we sort of had our plans in place of how we would handle all these appointments. But yes, we were on everyone. And then Mm. she came for the anatomy scan, which we got to do together. But the anatomy scan in LA. So it was really nice. We went to the doctor that, you know, a high risk OB who had seen me through all my pregnancy. So it was finally a good appointment in that office where we just really, you know, able to celebrate that this could be happening to us. Yeah. Okay. Wait, then I know she delivered here because I remember seeing your photo at Cedars where I also delivered and like, I call it Shangri Cedars. Like I could have moved in there for months and been happy. I was very happy there. Yeah. And what is it like now with her? With Michaela. So, you know, she is pumping for us. And so we still have that connection. I had like, it was very interesting because obviously I I had been pregnant four times and this time I wasn't. And I thought, oh, you know, I don't have any hormones. I'm not taking any hormones. I'm going to be so level-headed, you know, during pregnancy and after. And I swear everyone I talk to too that has gone the surrogacy route that has actually been pregnant on their own before, they say, like, Tara, you're gonna experience this like emotional roller coaster regardless mm-hmm. after. And I did. And one of the things I was like, now I'm 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 like Michaela's probably like, what is wrong? I like I'm the pregnant. I was the one that was pregnant. Like, <laughs> what is wrong with you? But I was like crying when it was over because I like missed the pregnancy with her. Oh my God. And it was just really interesting because I always thought maybe watching the birth or going to the hospital, you know, it would have sparked something in me to say like, okay, I'm going to try an immune protocol and I'm going to try to do this again. And instead I got home and like, that was not Mm -hmm. (laughs) the initial feeling or urge. It was more just missing just the change that all of a sudden happened. And I felt like Michaela and I just 
you know, we had such a schedule and we talked every day and it just felt like there was a little sadness that that part of it, that part of the journey was over. Mm, I love that. I think there are a lot of things that become unexpected surprises, obviously when we're thrust into motherhood, but especially after infertility, like we talked briefly about this the first time we spoke that I still to this day feel like my identity is who am I without infertility because it was so ingrained in me. Is there anything else you can think of that feels almost like a surprise? I mean, that I was something I've never heard before. And we've had multiple people who've used surrogates on this podcast of like, the emotional letdown of the pregnancy being over when it wasn't yeah. even your pregnancy. Yes. I think that's yeah. so fascinating. It, it really is. It was not something I expected. And I was so emotional, but I was like tears. It was like the thing I was crying about. And I was like, yeah. you know, but I think that I feel the same way as you is even now, even though I'm a quote unquote mom, which still seems surreal, it's um it's hard because I identify more with the person that I was for the last five years than the person I've been for this last month or so. And I'm sure if you put me in a room with someone who got pregnant naturally the first time carried their child and is a new mom, I'm going to feel more connected to the person that's prepping for a retrieval or prepping for a transfer or going through a miscarriage um, than the other person, just because that was such a huge part of my life and it was so traumatizing and such high anxiety and and so much at stake that I think, you know, those emotions are kind of hard to unwire. And they might never unwire. They right. still haven't for me. My kids are five. Yeah. I talked last week's episode that me and my husband talking about, we spent six years trying to bring them into the world and they haven't even been in this world as long as we tried to bring them in. So I'm like, for some reason in my head, I have this magical thinking that like at six years, which is how long we tried to get them in, maybe it'll start feeling a little bit more normal. But at five, it certainly doesn't. It's so strange. So with those things where you still feel entrenched in the fertility community, can you think of things like pregnancy announcements still trigger me five years later? Mm -hmm. Are there things so far that have still triggered you or things people say to you when they see you as a new mom with who might not know the story that trigger you. Like when I finally got pregnant and people would say, is it your first? Like that triggered me every time because you feel like you're not doing a service to the four you might've lost. You right. know, I get triggered easily by the, I think because I had so many losses, that was part, I think probably the hardest part of my journey. I mean, IVF is so difficult in every way. So everyone probably has one part that they feel was just, physically or emotionally the most taxing. And for me, it was all the miscarriages and sort of physically, emotionally, everything that went along with them. So, you know, my husband and I did a podcast on things that people say, and it's always just like, you do get triggered. You know, for me, it's around the surrogacy and the birth of Georgie. I feel like there, you know, were some people that would just be like, oh, like, well, your surrogate's pregnant. It's like a successful pregnancy. And for me, that's always triggering because it's like, right, but when is it successful? You know, like for me, I was pregnant four times, quote unquote, successfully, and Mm -hmm. it ended and I didn't have a baby um, to sort of prove for that successful pregnancy. So for me, I think there's like, for me, I'm always triggered around comments like that or, or even like, oh, like, it's hard for me to understand like you got pregnant so easily. Like you're so lucky that you got pregnant so easily. And it's always like, oh, but like it didn't result 
right. like I, it was great. To be, it's like, don't, you know, like I right. would tell anyone, like, if you're going to be pregnant, it doesn't result in a baby. Like, don't ever wish for that because right. it's awful. Right. right. <laughs> so, you know, there's, for me, I think it's more around, um, my losses the loss, yeah, and what, you know, what really is the definition of a successful pregnancy. And I think people just don't understand it because most people do see a positive pregnancy test and it is okay. And it is okay for the entire journey. You know what I mean? But for so right. many multiple repeat miscarriages is, you know, something that we struggle with. I'm curious in terms of your body because so many women who go through loss feel angry with their body, shame with their body. And you also like, I feel like you must be so grateful for your body and everything it's been able to do for you in your life. So I'm curious what you were thinking when those miscarriages happen in terms of your physical body. So it's interesting. Like, yes, I'm an athlete. Yes. My body worked for me until it, it really didn't, which is, it is sort of confusing. Cause I think I just was like, Oh, I can work harder do more and right. I'll fix the problem because that's what I did my whole life. I was forcing my body to sort of do these, in, you know, impossible physical feats. Um, and I learned quickly early on that that just wasn't the case. But I don't know if I just had a healthy relationship with how I felt about my body from skating um, where, you know, I really was able to separate the failures and not have it feel like it affected my self-esteem around my body. Yeah, no, I think that obviously it was a little bit of a learning curve of, okay, I can't force my body to make a successful pregnancy. So it was more just, I think, like a learning curve. But I will say, I don't know if I had a a good relationship, I think, with how I thought about my body and what it did for me when I was skating that helped me in this next obstacle. Because I do think that Yes, I had those moments of like, why is my body doing this? Why can't I just do this like everyone else? Why is it so difficult for my body? It feels like I was specifically chosen to have this problem and no one around me that I see has it quite to the extent I do. And I just couldn't, you know, I would have those thoughts about my body. But at the same time, I think I was able to separate that, you know, this was, it shouldn't impact how I feel about my body and I and I don't know why it, it wasn't it really wasn't that hard um for me to process, which is surprising, especially given my background of what my body did for me. But I think just in the beginning, I quickly realized like, okay, I can try to put all the hard work in. I can try to control everything and it's just Out there's no control. Correlation. Yeah. Did you think about your body this way when you were skating? I mean, what was it like for you to be a teenage girl and 20-something girl and like thinking about your body at that point and thinking about motherhood? Did you ever in your training and in your performing think about what motherhood might look like in terms of your body? No, not really. I mean, I was so focused on skating um, and so focused on my career that I didn't really think ahead at all. And I just thought, oh, that's just going to work out for me whenever I decide to do it. So I feel like for me, um, you know, I never really planned. I never really thought ahead, which is also sad because you just wonder if I could have avoided some of this trauma by freezing my eggs when I was 25 or 30. Like it just could have maybe changed our story, but maybe not. Who knows? But uh, I think our issue, obviously, eventually after five years with it being an immune issue, 
that would have been hard to predict back then. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, I yeah, chose God. Sure. And I love him dearly. So we just have this unique mismatch, which who would have thought? Totally. I and mean, there's no way to know until you are in it, which is what's so hard about it. Okay. So tell me where you are now in terms of, I know you're not like immediately going for another surrogate, but I know you've talked about the fact that you might go all over again. So like, what does it feel like? Are you like, Oh my God, I'm so in love with her. I need to do this again immediately. What are you thinking? Well, I think we definitely want a second child. And I think like I feel hopeful now that we sort of maybe have more clarity on what our issue was. You know, I think for so long being in the dark of what unexplained infertility diagnosis meant for us, we we really had no answers. So sort of discovering this immune issue and then realizing, oh, wow, our embryo you know, implanted the first time in our surrogate, that was successful. It kind of takes a little bit of that anxiety and the constant researching and constant fear I was in of, well, what is it? Is it, you're saying all the embryos okay, but could it be something with the embryo? You're saying, you know, you just don't know. You don't have answers. So now we have data points and proof, which kind of is like, I just remember like, okay, we did this once. It means we could do it again, but I also am not naive to the experience. And I know, you know, it took us five years to get to this point because so many unexpected things can pop up and happen. And none of this is a guarantee. And IVF isn't, an, you know, an exact science. So it's a little scary to know what this next journey could be like. And again, I still, for the pregnancy portion, I have so much anxiety around it. Like, to be honest, I don't really enjoy the pregnancy, even through surrogacy. I mean, I enjoyed my connection so much with Michaela, which like it was able to override any other emotion, which was really nice. But I really don't like a nine month wait of so many things that can go wrong. So for me, I'm like dreading that part of it because I, I didn't breathe until the moment Georgie came out. In fact, I was like hyperventilating, crying, sobbing because I was so nervous that something was going to go wrong when she came out that when like the baby was crying, I just couldn't control like these sobs of relief. It just was like, finally, I took a breath. Like finally, I was able to inhale and exhale without like intense fear. So I know we still have a lot to go through to get to that next point, but we're just so lucky that A, we have the option to continue treatment and to have a surrogate, which so many don't. And, you know, to be able to to have Georgie here to remind me that, you know, our embryos are there and ready to hopefully be made into little children. Yes. <laughs> Um, so we talk also on the podcast here about like career and infertility. So how far into your journey were you talking about it with people you were working with? Like soon or? For me, it was soon. I mean, everyone kind of knew just because I had to work through most treatments. I had to schedule doctor's appointments in different cities. I had to run off the air and take shots. Like it would have been way too difficult to hide in any way. So the NBC family, my family knew pretty early on in the process. Okay. I feel like that's a huge relief to not have to feel like it's a full-time job to also hide it from. Right. In terms of your career, like before you knew you were going to go the surrogate route, did it weigh in? Like, what is it going to be like if I'm on air and pregnant? Or are we just like, I don't care full force ahead. I'm going to be a mom. You know, in the beginning, and a lot of people in our industry do that where they 
use IVF as a way to plan around the Olympics because the Olympics come every two and four years. And that's <laughs> the main job for many of us. So that's a month out of your life that you don't show up for any reason, then, you know, that's your job. So a lot of people in the industry will use IVF or try to schedule pregnancy around the Olympics. And in the very beginning, that's why I started IVF was to hopefully have insurance. And then, you know, it's so funny that that's how, like, I thought it was going to happen. And life just completely laughed in my face every time. But just the fact that I was going to be able to maybe work it around my Olympic obligations. And, and, and then at a certain point, you just realize this is my number one priority, no matter what. And of course, we need to pay for these treatments. But, yeah. you know, we also can't wait or schedule it around life. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. God, I never thought about that, that people use IVF to be able to schedule around the Olympics. Like, why would I ever think of that? But that's such an interesting concept. I love it. Um, And are you itching to go back to any kind of work right now? I'm already working. So uh, my skating season starts in October. So we are in the midst of it already. So I work for NBC on all figure skating. I mean, we do the Summer Olympics and and other... um, other work with them, but our day job is figure skating. And that is from October to March. So um, there's some events we have to travel to, but most of it, I get to to work from home and it's been easy to, to um, be able to, to not have to leave the house and just yes. work. And you, does baby. it feel different? Like being back at work with a baby? It does. I mean, but, but, you know, because I'm home, I think it's, it's, um, it's a nice transition to still be able to, um, you know, do my job. If it was every weekend and I was traveling every weekend, that would have been so much more difficult with a newborn. So right. this, I'm, I'm lucky that I can run back up to the room to her afterward. <laughs> so talk to me a little about the podcast. Like at what point in your journey were you like, this is what this is going to be? Um, We just felt for a while that like at some point we were going to have to open up about this. It just felt like it became so much a part of our lives and we were so passionate about it. And um, it did feel like a secret, you know, obviously so many people in our circle knew, but you know, I'm a, I'm a, I've been a public figure for most of my life where I've shared a lot of my life and it just felt like I was hiding this one part. Um, and I needed to, like, I needed to protect myself. And I, and I say that to everyone. I don't think you have to be quote unquote brave and share your story. If that's not something that feels right to you, because that's not what brave is. I think the, the point of the podcast is just to open up conversations at any point. You know, if someone wants to talk about fertility, whether they struggle with it or not, I think it's a step in the right direction because it is still such a silent and, and taboo subject in so many ways. Um, but for me, I just got to the point where I like was so angry after the last miscarriage. I almost didn't care. You know what I mean? It, it just felt like what what is it, what is keeping this to myself actually bringing me anymore? It's not bringing me success. It's I guess I I feel I, I don't know. I guess I just felt ready at a certain point. It was like so much de- defeat that at a certain point I just felt like, okay, well, 
I have to share this at some point. It's not like even if I got pregnant and a baby showed up, it it would be very strange for me to just overlook the fact (laughs) that I spent five years of my life on this crazy journey. So that's how the podcast sort of began. Okay. I heard just in closing, like I heard you talk in one of your episodes about, I think you said your father is like a, either a wordsmith or like loves sayings and cliches. So I love asking people one or two things that stick with you either about the journey or not that you sort of bring into your everyday life. Um, well, it's funny you bring up my dad. My dad's saying never really applied to fertility. Um, right. It was really helpful for my my skating career and my broadcasting career. But his saying, he always said, is the only time success comes before work is in the di- dictionary. And I, my dad like loves his little phrases and sayings. But it's funny, I actually brought that up on the podcast because I, I said, that's the one time... Irrelevant know, in the, the fertility world... world that won't actually pay off for you. Um, but I, I I don't know. I think for me, just going through this process was was giving myself, and it sounds so cliche, but just giving myself grace through each step of it where it was something that I was never used to doing. I was just push, push, force things to happen, work harder. And it was the first time that over these five years, I think I learned a lot about myself because I was able to take each failure, each loss and feel those feelings. And I was really stubborn in the way that I wanted to do that. I mean, even times it was hard for my husband because I would let it just wash over me. I didn't want to be the person that was, oh, it's going to be okay though. Like, we'll try again. You know, like for me, I needed to like hit rock bottom. I needed to feel those feelings, desperate pity angry, you know, saying I'm never going to do it again for me to finally build up that urge to want to do it again. So I never have advice because everyone just has to go on this journey and and figure out what's right for them or their partner. But for me, I think that would be my advice is to like give yourself some room for all of these feelings to let yourself you know, whatever you're feeling is okay. And I think that's why we started the podcast too, because for so long, I thought my feelings weren't really valid. I I didn't know. I went with it. You know, I was stubborn. I was like, no, I'm going to feel this way. But there were so many times later, I would think, oh, am I abnormal? Are other people not feeling this feeling? Is it okay to feel anger or feel sad or to feel triggered by someone saying something to me? All of those things are okay. So I... I think for me, I would give anyone that advice of going through this journey is your feelings are all normal. They should be validated every step of the way. And that, you know, just let yourself kind of navigate the journey and 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 figure it out on your own because there's no roadmap for this. Mm, I love it. I love it. Well, we will link out to the pod and to you. And I thank you so much for opening up. It's every single person that can shed light on this topic, help somebody else. And you're helping so many people. So thank you. I'm so glad you're doing this. Thank you. And like you said, it's just crazy how you feel so connected to the people in this community, just deeply connected. I cry at night when I read these messages. I am I am so invested in everyone's journeys and you just feel a closeness and a bond to strangers that you've never met before. It's it's wild. Totally agree. That's why we're doing what we do, both of us. Yes. Tara, thank you so much. And send my love to Todd, who's such a huge part of this journey too, of course. 
Wow, wow, wow. Always appreciate when somebody in the spotlight can be so open about their journey. It's so helpful to so many people. Again, thank you to Tara. Her podcast is Unexpecting, which we will link out to. And thank you so much. You guys always love when I do episodes with Isaac. I think it's so sweet. Thanks for the love from our episode last week. We are still processing the kids' birthdays, the fact that we went through infertility for six years. I'm not sure when it won't feel like it's such a huge part of our story, but I'm grateful that I have an opportunity to share it here. Please remember to like, follow, and share The Fertility Chick on Instagram, Abby Feeder on Instagram, InCircle Fertility on Instagram. Tara's information will be linked below. Follow, follow, like, like, review, review, and come back next week. Share the episode with anyone you love. Bye.